I'm the founder and president of the Future Now Media Foundation, which is a nonprofit leadership incubator for students passionate about pursuing careers in the media and entertainment industry. And this is the Future Now Media Podcast, where we believe a future now is a future one. In this series, we'll be talking to some of today's top leaders, executives, and professionals in the media and entertainment industry. We'll also share some of the best content from our Future Now live events. Today's episode features a panel discussion with C-suite executives Maurice Fett, Stacey Gray, Anne Del Castillo, and John Valade. This panel took place at the 2017 Future Now Media and Entertainment Conference in New York City. Maurice Fett is the Global Chief Revenue Officer for AccuWeather. Stacey Gray is the Chief Creative Officer at In Demand. Anne Del Castillo is Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel for the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. And John Valade is the Chief Revenue Officer of TrustX and Senior Vice President of Advertiser Relations at DCN. The discussion is moderated by TV personality Kirsten Hagland, who served as Miss America in 2008. Kirsten asked the panel about what their C-suite roles look like, how they got to where they are today, and what they look for in the people they hire. Take a listen. I want to start first by going through um, to each person on the panel here and giving all of us a little insight into what you do on your day to day. Because I know that we all see titles on LinkedIn and we, Chief Creative Officer, Global Revenue Officer, what does that really mean? And what does your day to day look like? So Marie, do you wanna, do you wanna start us off here? Sure, um, so my day uh, consists of one meeting after another. It's usually just a marathon <laughs> of meetings. But uh, what I'm responsible for is uh, overseeing the ad sales strategy and um, execution of that strategy uh, so that the company earns revenue. And I also look into business development. I oversee the ad operations because uh, primarily the ad sales for AccuWeather are digital, so you need ad operations. And then ad sales marketing and um, basically all of the back office, although I hate that term, um, the support that goes into everything to help generate revenue for AccuWeather. Wonderful. And I thought I want to ask this to to each person on the panel as well. That's what you're doing now. Where did you start? Or what did you think that you were going to be doing when you were in your early 20s? Uh, I actually planned out my career. Um, I was one of those geeks. So I started out in this industry. I wanted to be in the industry. And so I started out on the buy side as a media buyer. But digital hadn't been really born yet. So I was doing uh, media buying for an ad agency, and it was uh, for national television. Amazing, wonderful. Okay, Susie or Susie, Stacy, excuse me. Um, so I work for a company that distributes uh, Hollywood movies, independent films, uh, pay-per-view events like wrestling, WWE, boxing, and sports packages to all the major cable companies. And I oversee the marketing and creative services teams. So what we do is create marketing support for all the cable companies to help them promote these products to their customers. So that might be TV commercials, banner ads, um, graphics packages, uh, you know, social media content, whatever, you know, the, the tactics are that they would use to promote to their customers. And 
I oversee several different teams. So there's the, the marketing team, which focuses a lot on digital marketing strategies and execution. The creative services team, which is graphic designers, writer producers, and editors that are creating promos and sometimes even print ads, banner ads. And then we also have a video production team that does a lot of assembly editing um, of spots that maybe the TV commercials that studios will give us where we put um, the logos for all the different cable companies you know, on the end of them so it looks like it's their commercial. And so there's sort of a whole like, little factory um, of creating and distributing marketing materials out. And so my day-to-day -day is really kind of a variety of things from sometimes uh, strategy, you know, we oversee creative and marketing strategy, media planning, um, <clears throat> reviewing of creative uh, materials uh, before they go out, um, sort of a, you know, kind of a wide breath, meeting with <laughs> studios, hearing about what movies they have coming up, deciding, thinking of ways we can help them to promote those uh, thing, those properties. Um, so it's kind of the fun stuff, really. You know, it's getting to be idea people, but also there's a lot of execution um, and a lot of deadlines because when things go on the air, you know, they need to be promoted, and so stuff has to get out the door. It's really like running a little in-house ad agency. Yeah. And where did you start your career? Uh, I actually started in a small ad agency, yeah. and that agency, I was an art director, because I went to Parsons School of Design here in the city. It's a communication design major, so came out as really design and um, communication, advertising art director. And that agency that I worked for, my first job, was an agency that happened to specialize in cable television clients. So that is how I sort of developed my specialty and my interest in working on entertainment advertising, marketing, branding. Wonderful. And Anne? Um, I, uh, I'll start with where I started. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was in college. Um, and so I majored in English and mass comm because I liked both of those things and I knew I would get good grades in it if I liked it. Um, uh, because I assumed I was probably gonna have to go to grad school eventually, so I may as well graduate with good grades. So I got a dual degree. And um, the summer after my uh, uh, some after I graduated, I traveled a bit around Europe and met a BBC cameraman and discovered that he was traveling to cover the Olympics, and I thought that was a really cool job. So when I got back to New York, I um, took an internship at WNET Channel 13, which I didn't realize, you don't really get to travel that much in public broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I entered there, and, and I ended up um, just sort of following different opportunities in television and film. I ended up moving to Boston, and because of my work in New York, I was able to transfer to the PBS station up there. And then, um, because I decided I only wanted to go to places that rhyme, I ended up moving to Austin. I'm kidding, I'm totally <laughs> kidding. I did a, a cross-country road trip and ended up in Austin and found an amazing film community there and worked in production a bit, dabbled a little bit. This guy that I had done an internship for in um, college had said, you might want to, I'd done editing for him, or copy editing books, and he said, you might want to try doing script supervision. It's like editing, but for film. And uh, so when I got to Austin, they did this crew call for independent films, which means that you got paid nothing. Um, but they needed a script supervisor, and I said, I'd like to do it. And they said, have you done it before? I said, no, but I found this book about how to do it. And they're like, good enough. 
<laughs> and so, uh, and so began this career in um, film and television. I also ended up working at the Austin Film Society, which at that time, we're talking now 15 years ago, it was really small, it was three people. Um, and while I was there, we grew tremendously. The Austin Municipal Airport ended up shutting down, and the team I was with uh, decided that they wanted to turn it into film studios. So I got to do the, this amazing, amazing work that I would never have imagined I was gonna get to do. Um, and I probably would still be in Austin, honestly, if it wasn't for 9-11. Um, and I decided that I wanted to be home. Um, and I had actually wanted to work at the mayor's office. That's where I am now. I work for the mayor's office of media and entertainment. At the time, it was the mayor's office of film because I was like, I've done this in Austin. I've worked with the government in Austin. I've done film production. It'd be a great place to end up. Um, and that didn't quite end up happening. Um, I sort of networked my way through to a job back in public television. Um, ending up working at American Documentary, which produces a POV series, a documentary series on POV. And sort of halfway into my tenure there, I was there for 10 years, um, I'd been doing contracts because they said, well, you produced in Austin and you have done fundraising in Austin, so why don't you do fundraising and contracts for us, which later, you'll realize later on that actually makes zero sense. It's two very different jobs, but I did them and I decided I couldn't stand the fundraising end, so I decided to go back to law school at a much more, more, I was 15 years out of college, let's just put it that way. So I was kind of on the older end of law school students when I went back, um, got my degree, and then quite, quite by a funny circumstance, uh, my former boss at POV was appointed film commissioner a few years ago. While she was there, her director of legal affairs resigned. I had my law degree, we'd done business together. She was like, would you like to come on board? And that's how I ended up here. So. Now I am um, Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel, which basically means that I do everything nobody else wants to do. <laughs> um, so I oversee um, operations for an agency which now, in addition to all of on location, we coordinate on location filming throughout the five boroughs. So whenever you see Made in New York truck or you see a film shoot, they've had to come through our office to get um, parking permits um, or coordinate stunts. And it's a huge undertaking. We have seven people to um, coordinate uh, film shoots throughout the city. Um, and then we also, 10 years ago, took over the operation of the radio's film, uh, sorry, television and radio network, which is a 24-7 operation. We have six channels and a radio station. Um, and we also have a team that covers the mayor and city council. So whenever you're watching those things, that's our team that's out there. And then last year, we expanded our portfolio because we weren't doing enough <laughs> um, to include advertising, publishing, music, and digital content, and then real estate in support of those industries. Um, and so my primary function is just to make sure that all these new program areas have the infrastructure and support and the budget um, and all of the legal documentation that they need to try and make wise investments of taxpayer dollars into programs that benefit the city. Awesome, thank you. And, and such a great perspective to have you as well because a lot of, you can't just pick up a camera and start filming in New York. <laughs> uh, there, you have to work constantly. It doesn't matter what, you know, what city or where that you shoot or, or want to produce or wherever you're producing content, it's, these relationships with the local governing bodies are essential. So thanks for your perspective. Uh, John, how about you? Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm fabulous. Good, all right. So my career started with an internship. Um, and I, I really started at CNBC uh, many, many years ago, but 
the internship went something like this. I was in grad school. I knew I wanted to be in media. I needed a job. I took my resume over to uh, uh, Fox 44 in Waco, Texas, uh, where I went to school. And uh, I said, I, I need a job. I want to be in advertising or something, do something here. And they said, well, we don't have a job. And I sat across from the general sales manager and he said, no, he goes, wait a minute. He said, are, are you from New Jersey? And I said, yes, that's what my resume said. And he goes, and you want to be in ad sales? And I said, sure. And he goes, boy, we've got a great job for you. We've got some bad debt out there and they'll be really scared of a guy sent from New Jersey to go collect on bad <laughs> advertising debt. So that, so that was my entrance to the media world. I was collecting bad debt in central Texas. So I, lo I loved it. We actually, what it did is it started the relationship business for me because that's a tough conversation to have. You can't be on the air unless you pay your bills. Anyway, um, <laughs> after, after grad school, I, I came up and I started uh, working for, for CNBC back in the early days when CNBC and MSNBC were just becoming big burgeoning cable networks. Um, after that, changed over to advertising sales. Uh, I've led sales and business development teams with NBC Universal, Discovery, uh, CBS, I was early at Hulu, which was an absolute blessing. Uh, spent about five years selling with the Hulu team here in New York. And currently, I work for Digital Content Next, which is a major digital trade organization that represents 80 premium publishers, including all the big guys that you know. And as a part of Digital Content Next, I'm also the chief revenue officer for a new project called TrustX, which is a programmatic advertising marketplace, which includes a lot of those premium publishers which is really fighting transparency issues and fraud issues in the programmatic advertising digital marketplace. So very proud to be involved with that. Yeah, really, really incredible. So obviously, as you guys can see, very, very diverse perspectives here. And just as we did earlier in the sessions this morning, we're going to have a chance for you to ask them questions. So as we're having our conversation, please just be thinking about some questions that you might want to ask. Um, so one thing that I would love to talk with you about, especially given our, our audience here, is how, you know, the generational divide in the workplace, um, what you look for in talent coming up, and how your experiences um, as you have moved through the industry during various life stages, you know, what wisdom and insight you can impart um, to our young people. Well, I think uh, I read a New York Times op-ed a couple, I think it was like a couple years ago, and it was, it said, what uh, things that I wish I knew when I was 20. Um, this person writing this at her 40th birthday. And one of the quotes that was my favorite, and I still use it, is that you learn that everyone is winging it. Some people just are winging it more confidently than others. <laughs> and uh, I kind of want to use that as a launching pad for, you know, what are some, you know, current, in, in honor of transparency, John, um, you know, what are some current, you know, struggles and things that you deal with on your level, right? Because I think that young people look up to uh, people very established in their careers and think they've got it all together, they've got it all figured out, but we all face challenges no matter what stage of career that we're in. So I'd love to hear, you know, from each of you kind of what challenges you're dealing with either in your industry or uh, in your role specifically, you know, what are your day-to-day -day kind of challenges and things you have to overcome? All right, John, you you're first. You want to take a crack at um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I think the first part of your question is really important, which is what, what are we looking for? What are guys like me looking for? And colleagues and, and people that we hire and teammates. Um, humility is definitely one. Um, integrity is definitely one. And hard work. Um, and, and we talk about careers a lot, and everyone thinks a career is manufactured. Don't try to manufacture that. Um, if you put the hard work in, things will really happen for you. And this, this industry is struggling 
with some of the very things that I talked about. Integrity is definitely one. Um, you know, Kirsten and I spent some time earlier this week talking about trust in journalism and trust in news and fake news. Uh, we need a generation that's going to fight for truth and integrity in the business and trusted relationships with your colleagues, with your clients, um, in, in production, in illustration, wherever you are. These are really, really keys. And one of the things that we're doing with TrustX is we're fighting fraudulent activity in the advertising marketplace. And you need good people who really just want to do the right thing in this business for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about this, actually, and I realize um, I think because we live in such an instantaneous culture now where you can access information about anything and um, young people are becoming YouTube's sorry I don't mean to say young people but it's just it's just to differentiate like um, you know you can become a YouTube star you can become a, a CEO you can become an entrepreneur pretty quickly um, uh, and so I think it sets up this expectation and this pressure for young people to be like I need your job right and so I think what I've seen sometimes is people come in and think that they're just gonna like knock it out of the park and you know be a director from day one and um, and while we do have some directors that are in their 20s um, you know for the most part it takes people some time to get there and so I think just having an awareness that um, just to really be in the moment of where you are and open to those experiences I mean that that's kind of what got me where I am I wasn't uh, looking to be on top or in charge. I was just really enjoying and learning as much as I could wherever I was, and that's really what stands out the most. Um, and I see it not just in young people. I want to be clear. Like I, I'm in this sandwich generation of management right now where we have boomers that I'm supervising, and then I'm supervising millennials. And it's not easy. It's a really, I mean, I have it in my life personally, too, with my mother and my son, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's a tough spot, right? Because you have boomers that aren't familiar with the technology and aren't familiar with the ways that people communicate in meetings. And then you have um, young people who are sort of like texting, uh, you know, using text language and emails. That's also not good. I would say don't do that. Uh, so I think having people come in and really understand that they can learn a lot from each other, whether you've been there a year or two days, is really, really important. Yeah, yeah, we do live in such a superlative culture. Everything has to be the best, the fastest, the youngest, all that, and there's, you know, that's very catchy in media language, that's what, you know, we cover, but it's not the majority of people. You know, do every day excellently, be your best every single day, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, um, and how about how about you, Stacy, in, in your work? What challenges do you see in your um, you know area of the industry, and, and what do you look for in, in young people? Well, I think what I look for really is people that have a natural confidence and also good are good listeners and have good follow through, because usually with young people that are are you know are entry level people, you, you know they're doing maybe administrative things, detail oriented things that you know you need to do well and you need to do right and you kind of be got to be on top of the details so detail oriented I always look for someone who has worked um, and this was a former boss of mine gave me this advice he's like look for people that worked in high school look for people that were did something in their fraternity or a sorority that had some kind of role or job in college because then you know that they have a natural work ethic mm -hmm. and I think um, that that is something that I always definitely follow when you're looking at resumes. Um, you know, I will 
generally uh, look for the people that have had some prior work experience. And it doesn't have to be professionally related. It's just saying, this is a person that's not afraid to work. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's, that's another thing that I would look for in um, an entry level person. Um, and then, I mean, some of the challenges are just, you know, I think at my level is trying to influence the corporate culture of, mm -hmm. of our company to make sure that it is, a, it is a satisfying place to work for people of all, you know, the generations that work there. But, you know, we have to be good listeners. You have to kind of understand what makes people happy, what motivates them, and then try to affect, you know, change in programs and, you know, engagement uh, things to keep, you know, people feeling good about working for the company because there is a lot of turnover. Um, it is, you know, competitive in New York, and it is expensive for companies when, you know, people leave and you have to replace them with new people. Not only is it expensive, but it puts a lot of stress on coworkers and bosses because then you have to train a new person. And so I think most companies have a vested interest in trying to retain employees. So I spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about that on behalf of my company. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I, I think people think C-level and very high, and they think of manage, management and, and strategy and all these very, you know, intense things. But also so much of it is that corporate culture is how do you manage people? How do you keep people happy? It's all, it's a lot of soft skills, <laughs> right? Um, and Marie, how about, how about you in your, in your uh, area of the business? Well, the first thing I would I wanted to address was well, the biggest challenge is uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people in the C-suite, and that is it groupthink. Uh, mm -hmm. So much of what we talk about is strategic, and you can't let the, um, it get outside. You, you can't have it messaged down to or, you know company wide or get it out into the market, so that it becomes a very insular type of communication and community. And I think what happens is then that becomes your only, um, you don't have an ex any access to the outside world because you're only like, if we were you know, the C-suite at my company, it would just be us talking about things over and over again without getting any sort of feedback from like the real world. Mm -hmm. So one of the benefits to mentoring programs to having uh, panels and, and days like today is having access to not just young people, but everybody to get fresh and new ideas because, you know, otherwise it's just the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really bode well for consumers because you're not hearing what the consumer potentially has to say out there. Yeah. So then shifting into what I'm looking for when I'm hiring is age is irrelevant. I don't care about that. What I care about is passion and I care about attitude. Attitude is everything. Um, if you are open to rolling up your sleeves and doing the work, and you know, Stacy's right, if if it's I see it on your resume, I know that you've worked, um, and you know you haven't led a very soft life necessarily. Um, and passion, you know, if if you manage to get to sit in front of me, at least have the common courtesy to have done some research on me, the company, and tell me why you're there. Um, we were talking in the green room about so often people will come and speak to us and they have no focus, 
they have absolutely no idea why they're there or a plan and you know what they actually are asking you for are they are you even asking the right questions if you want to come and find out how did I get to where I am because you're thinking about your own paths that's okay if that's all you want but if you're going there because you think this is an easy in and you're gonna get a job you might want to move on <laughs> Yeah. Um, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. That's a Winston Churchill quote. It's a favorite of mine. And you talked about the importance of attitude. Um, and you mentioned, and I want to throw this out and ask you guys, I say, I have a ton of ad people on this panel here. You talked about groupthink and things not getting outside the bubble and getting their real consumer experience. Is that how that Pepsi ad got made? <laughs> is, Anyone want to answer that? I mean, is that an example of something where that happened that they just don't realize how things are going to read out there? I mean, I know you're on a different <laughs> side of things, but... Advertisers aren't prone from Stacey. being tone deaf, so, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think yeah, it happens would, a lot. Yeah. I would say, though, yeah. that for the most part, big companies like Pepsi do a lot of consumer testing on yeah, their so advertising happened? campaigns before, you yeah. know, they put anything out there. So, but, you know, I guess sometimes you can just have a misread. And with social media, it actually just takes a small but vocal, uh, you know, person to start a really negative, you yeah. know, uh, I guess. I would actually like to Wave, see you know, so it might not be everyone that felt that way, but someone started it and then everybody and can. And it just, it just, just goes viral. And every, yeah, so. Yeah. I'd also like to see what the makeup of the team was that came up with that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, one of the things that we're really focused on at my office is diversity in media. And we're trying to find, I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to find ways to bring, and I don't necessarily mean diversity just in terms of this, but experience, like where you came from. I, mean, I, I, I have some very good Asian friends that are super privileged and can understand, like, uh, what it means to have to work your way through school um, and or to make the decision between paying rent or buying groceries. And I think not having that awareness in the room uh, really uh, <laughs> um, affects how people see representation and are able to um, uh, see where there might be gaps, shall we say, in that representation. I mean, I was actually just in a meeting this past week where it's a pretty progressive group that I work with, and we were talking about a program that we were going to launch, and I was like, do you understand that there's not a single Asian subject matter in this and I wasn't saying it because I'm Asian it was like we had every other representation and it was like a big black uh, hole in there like there was just they didn't see it they were like well we have this and I was like it's not the same because the goal that we're trying to achieve is to represent all of New York City yeah. and our office is not that far from Chinatown so it's going to be a pretty obvious <laughs> omission if we don't include this in there yeah. so you know, I just, I think that might have had something to do with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, um, you talked about having different perspectives in the room. And one thing that I feel like comes up in a lot of conversation between how the generations work together in, in the workforce. And there's this, um, I think, this uh, kind of struggle uh, for young people, for millennials uh, coming into the workforce in how much do I try to project confidence and use my voice as a part of this company, and how much do I have to respect the hierarchy and you know keep quiet, keep to myself? Um, you know, where is that line between how much engagement you expect from more entry level or, or millennial uh, employees versus you know also uh, them understanding that they need to be patient and they need to be respectful and work their way up? Um, and I understand too that every company has a little different attitude 
toward that. Um, but I would love to get your honest uh, perspectives on that because I think it's an unspoken feeling for a lot of young people entering the workforce. Like, how much do I say? What do I not say? And when do I go for the handshake? When do I not? And when do I speak up in a meeting? And when do I stay silent? John, let's start with you. Yeah. <clears throat> um, some of this will depend on what you're looking for in a company. Um, you know, a lot of companies can be read very quickly in terms of, in terms of their hierarchy. Right? You can look at organizational charts, you can look at who's involved, and you can say, you know, it might take a little while for me to find my voice within this organization. Um, you know, I personally, especially over the last 15 years and with the advent of digital media and, and the value of so many different opinions in, in a marketplace that's just overloaded with media options, um, I, I, I always gravitated toward team environments where everyone's voice mattered. And, we were team members, and yes, there was authority in the room, and, and yes, someone ultimately had to make the call, but your voice was as important as any others, especially if you had done your homework mm -hmm. and had an authentic piece of data to bring to the table or an authentic, an authentic experience to bring to the table. Um, so I, I, I think it's important. I think you need to know the culture that you're getting into, and we talked about culture early on. Um, and if you're not finding that your voice is heard, try to find some mentoring within the organization to find out how to best approach that. Because it's not always easy. Uh, corporate politics are tough. We've all navigated them yeah. on this stage at one point or another. Um, so this is where mentorship internally can be very, very important. Yeah. Stacey, I'd love to get your thoughts on that too because you work for a 100, 150 person um, organization which might be a little smaller than say a big cable network. How does that um, conversation and that dynamic look uh, where you work? Uh, I mean, I guess what I would say is, in my observation, you know, of working with people for so long is that there are people that are outgoing and confident and will contribute, and there are others that are maybe a little more reserved and will want to contribute but are waiting to, like, be asked or give some kind of, given some kind of permission. Um, and then there are people that are just shy and never say a word. And it doesn't matter where I've worked, and it doesn't matter really, hmm. you know. Their age. Their, their age. Yeah. I mean, it's just personality types. Mm -hmm. So I think people generally that are inquisitive, that are idea people, that are doers, you know, they're going to be more outgoing. They're going to feel a little more comfortable testing the waters of um, contributing. Mm -hmm. um, and... Those people in the middle, you know, I think if you're like that, you might need to push your, yourself a little bit because I don't think there's too many companies, and I could be wrong, that say you're not allowed to speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think yeah. some of this comes from up yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and your own maybe insecurities. So uh, step up. Yeah. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? I love that. Yeah, and I have an authentic, you know, thing to offer. And someone in or our earlier... a good question. You don't have to have an yeah. answer. Yeah. No, that's great. Someone in our earlier session said today, you know, bring an authentic, a data point. You know, 40% of people, you know, do your research, do your homework, and, and have an authentic bit to add or a really great question. Actually, that was how I got a job once, was I was at an event and there was a speaker. And um, I raised my hand and asked a question that was a burning question. And then they talked to me afterward and was like, hey, I want to hire you. <laughs> So sometimes it just takes a really great question. Um, Marie, um, how, how about you? What have you seen in, in your workplace? Um, I, I agree with Stacy, and I, th I think that it really depends on the person. It also depends on the company, kind of like what John had said. Um, I also have seen where 
new people have come in and they're really engaged and they, they will step up and they're all over the place and then everyone hates them. <laughs> um, and that feel, makes me feel really badly for that person. Yeah. But it's, they just need to, they didn't read the room. That's what that was all about. Not that they shouldn't participate and I don't mean to suggest that you shouldn't speak up at all. I think you should just be aware of, uh, of your audience at the time. Is it appropriate? And if you don't know, then, like what John said, find a mentor, and I would start with your boss first, and hopefully, you know, your boss is a confident person and isn't gonna see your wanting to uh, being active and engaged as a threat, because that does happen too, just being real here. And if you also think that that's the case, then you find another mentor or an advocate, which is even better, someone who's gonna speak highly of you when you're not in the room. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, uh, piggybacking on that topic of mentoring, which is so important, and a couple of you have mentioned it. And if you haven't found a mentor yet or someone, oh, this is so incredibly essential and something that I really hope you take from today of how important mentorship is. And John, when we spoke, you had a really fabulous idea about not just a mentor, but a whole team. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I, I would take it beyond just the mentor in, in the workplace. and. Assemble your own personal board of directors. Has anyone ever heard that expression before? Mm-hmm. All right, a couple of you have. It's important. Um, find a couple of people within the workplace. Find some peers. Find some relatives, people that you trust, and assemble a personal board of directors that you can bounce ideas off of from a career perspective, from a life perspective, from any perspective. And that, that personal board of directors may change over time, but, but, but do it so that you're not experiencing this stuff alone. Uh, let circumstance speak into your life a little bit. Let other people speak into your life a little bit. There's a lot of experience. My father-in-law has been on my personal board of directors for a long time. Not an easy one, but I told him I wanted to be a radio DJ, and he said, I think I need to be on your personal board of directors. So, um, but yeah, that's, I, I find that to be very good advice. And I, I have a personal board of directors, and it, and it changes. It changes based on my life circumstance and my career circumstance. Yeah, and I love that too. It's like you never get too old or too far in your career to be mentored, right? I feel like we always should be being mentored and mentoring others, right? How about anyone else have a mentoring experience that they want to share, either having mentored someone or or a a suggestion of how to go about that for young people? Or a great mentor you had? Um, You know, I I actually have several mentors. uh, to this day, um, and I try to be a good mentor too, because I feel like being a mentor just helps you be a better manager, and um, and you learn. And I think the best mentor relationships are the ones where you are both learning something. Um, but I would say, you like like John said, you're going to have different needs. Like uh, where I come from, there were no other executive level people in my family, um, and there's one, and that is my and and you you know it's it. it it's interesting because I've been thinking about this. If you don't have somebody that's been in an executive level in your family, it's very hard to understand how to navigate the politics of that, of that world um, and how to uh, make good decisions and bargain for yourself. So I, I think it is important to find someone like that. If, if that's where you want to be, you have to figure out who that is in your family so they can give you guidance going all the way. Um, and then in your, 
in your peer groups, you know, sometimes you'd be surprised where you can find mentors. It, it could be your roommate that's partying all the time, but maybe has like this excellent job somewhere and is go has already gone through the challenges of dealing with like, do I speak up? Do I not speak up? How do I ask for a raise? How do I negotiate my first salary? That, that kind of thing. So I think being open to where you can find mentors is uh, equally important. So and they don't have to be in your industry. Like one of my mentors is actually someone I went to business school with. She's in a completely different industry, but you know she is um, a woman that deals with a lot of adversity. Is often the only one in the room uh, in her position, and I admire her so much. So when things happen. You know, she's one of the first people I will pick up the phone and call and talk to about. And she may not know, you know, the, the particulars or the nuances of what my industry is, but in general, she gives great um, overriding advice. And, and, you know, certain things are, you know, will cross all industries, like negotiating salaries and things like that. And um, she's indispensable to me. It's incredible. You know, one thing before we throw it out to you guys, um, I. I would love to hear, and this kind of mentoring and finding a good mentor is in and of itself a hack, a life hack, right? But it also made me think you guys probably, because of the juggling and the plates you're spinning and everything of what you have to do, you probably have some really good life hacks, like organizational life hacks. Like this is how I organize my calendar. This is what I do every morning to make sure that I've like got my game face on, or this is how I decompress every night, or you know, some kind of life hack like that that you can give us a little window into. Anybody got anything? I've got my phone here and I'm gonna take notes. <laughs> Go on long, quiet walks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, train commuting is good for that. You just have some quiet time. Actually building in you know, just some non-active time yeah. is, I think, important to balance out stress. And also, it clears your mind so that you can then think more clearly. Strangely enough, right? When you come back to something, the answers all of a sudden seem, oh, a little bit simpler and clearer because once we get ourselves all worked up and stress and the anxiety of trying to deal with something and then it's almost like your brain seizes up. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. And I also like portability things. So I like Dropbox and Google Docs because I'll often think of something that I want to you know, write down or I have so many things that I'm working on at once and I like to kind of have it all with me so that when I, Think of something, I can just add to a document, and you know, it's, it's there. So if I'm on my phone or from my office or wherever I am, I like kind of. It's a notebook in the cloud, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, amazing. How many cups of coffee you average on a day? Eight. Eight? Oh, really? Wow. Actually, I just, okay, I get uh, New York Times email newsletter well. It's all stuff on health and fitness and nutrition and everything like that. And the whole newsletter this week was about how good coffee is for you. And it had like five different articles on why coffee is great for you, for exercise, for your brain health and everything. So eight cups of coffee, you're the healthiest person on this stage. <laughs> um, but any other, uh, Anne, do you have anything to add? Um, I think some hacks or sort of knowing yourself. I, I know that sounds, but like physically, like what do you need? Like I know that I absolutely need six hours of sleep or I'm going to be a mess. And mm -hmm. if I don't get six hours uh, too many nights in a row, then I got to figure out a way to like 
build in some downtime at work where I'm not working on something really, because it can, it can get, there are weeks where it's just pushing. I mean, this month we have six major announcements that we're launching. Um, and then I also know that I get hangry. <laughs> so <laughs> I, am a cre I am a stickler for routine. I have breakfast at a specific hour, lunch at noon. I never book any noon meetings unless it's a lunch meeting. Um, and then I know that I have to eat and because and I know it sounds stupid But the, these are really like If I get off on that then it can really mess up my day yep. And I'll be falling asleep in my four o'clock meeting, which will not be good. So yeah, yeah. no It's so important when you when you do uh, obviously to do a job Well, you need your entire brain to be able to be functioning and present and nutrition and sleep is such an important part of that um, All right, we've got to go to questions. All right guys so we've got some microphones here. Yes, sir, in the red sweater. Um, Stacy? Yes. Oh, hello, my name is Brian. Um, what is the most selling pay-per-views um, you've seen um, so far? Uh, well, boxing, obviously, big boxing matches will sell the most in terms of buys. Um, if Mayweather fights. Canelo fights? <laughs> Canelo. Uh, and then UFC, some of the big, you know, UFC events are also, the UFC has really grown, and uh, some, if they have, you know, uh, top fighters fighting, you know, those will be the biggest for us. Yeah. Got, uh, yes, ma'am, in the second row here. Good afternoon. My question is, do you have any books that you would recommend um, that you read in the past, whether it's relating to leadership or anything other related to your um, to your work? That's a great question. I do. Yeah, go for um, it. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called The One, and it's like the, like the one thing, and it's how you can focus on the one most single most important thing that day. So it helps you prioritize um, not just your day and your life, but your project so that you get more done. And the one, the one really thing that, that stood out for me was uh, take your vacations and when you're on your current vacation, plan the next one. So then when you're working and it, life gets really tough, you have, you have a, a present for yourself, a goal that you're working towards always. I love that. Something to look forward to. Ah, thinking of the beach right now. <laughs> Finding my mental beach. Okay, any, anyone else books to recommend? <clears throat> um. Anything by Malcolm Gladwell, um, mm, yes. in particular Outliers, read Outliers. If you have not read Outliers, it explains a lot about how life works um, and how people get to where they are, and, and it's not always what you expect. And then the other book uh, that I love is a book called Jesus CEO. Um, I don't know if anyone has any re read, read that, but it uh, talks a lot about servanthood leadership, um, and it applies to every aspect of life. That's awesome. Anyone else? You can think about it. We'll come back to it. Um, well, one thing I would say is that there's, and there's a few books that do this, and probably a lot of people have done this, but, you know, these assessments that kind of uh, help you define your working style, I think that can be very helpful, because not only do you get to understand how you work and think and process, but you also um, can see profiles of how people not, other people work and think and process. And I think that helps when you get into the workplace um, to kind of identify what mm -hmm. you're up against. Who are the, you know, what are the people on your team? What are they like? Um, what are they good at? What are their strengths and weaknesses? And how do you fit with them? Or if you don't, you know, kind of how do you 
uh, work around that. But I've always, I, I tend to find things like that very interesting and helpful because I'm very interested in you know how people think uh, and approach things. Yeah, no, that that's so great. That that is uh, reminding me of one I took recently. Uh, I'm, I'm General Myers Briggs, but. If the website is 16personalities.com, and the way that they do the results is it's very, I mean, it's made for millennials that are graphic driven and, you know, all that. It's a beautiful website, but they assign like a name for each type. So I'm an INFP, and I am the advocate. So, you know, real altruism driven and but more introverted and... I know that might sound weird because I'm up on a stage, but I actually am a natural introvert. Um, and so it gives each person, like my mom is a campaigner, like the campaigner, and it gives you a little graphic, like a, um, a what's the word I'm thinking of? Like a little, you know, a picture of almost like a bitmoji, you know? And, and it, it outlines this whole type of person, working style, everything that you are. So 16, the number 16personalities.com. It's really fun and really interesting. And then you get to see, oh, that person in my life is a so-and-so. And, you know, that person is my husband's a salesperson. So, you know, it's like you, it's a really, really great way of putting a real image around who, who people are and what their working style is. And there's another one I just thought of the name Strength Finders. <gasps> Strengths Finder is right, amazing. Right, which sounds similar. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's yeah, really I think worth it's good. it. Like, the more you understand what your strengths are and sort of who you are, the more you can play to them and you can really find your lane. I remember the first time I did some kind of workshop that, you know, was based on this theme, and they divided you up into groups based on how you would solve a problem. And I always had identified myself as a creative. I went to art school, and I was, you know, an art director running a creative department. But it, I learned from that that my real, not that I'm not creative, but one of my other really big strengths is that I'm a process person, very good at organizing people, organizing things. And like, I think when I realized, I was surprised. I was like, wait, but I want to be over there with those people. You know? But I was like, yeah, you know, it really makes sense. But that made me look at myself and my strengths in a whole new way. And I, I actually think that that was instrumental in feeling that I could uh, move forward and broaden my career beyond just the creative work and into more management and leadership. So, you know, really I, cool. I really recommend it. I'm going to sound like a hippie, but um, <laughs> one book that I actually did find really helpful early in my career and that I just recommended to uh, one of my interns, it's called The Miracle of Mindfulness, and it's by a Buddhist monk by the name of Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, it, it just... it teaches you to be mindful of everyday activities, and it's something that I've carried with me throughout my career, um, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, mindfulness is a really great technique if it's very buzzy right now, um, but you should really Google it, look into it, read this book, um, because it kind of talks about presence, what you were talking about, long walks and that quiet time and being present, especially in our digital age. Learning how to do that is a, is a skill. You have to learn how to quiet your, your mind, and so that's a, a really great tip. Yeah, any other questions? Yes, right here. Hi. Um, we often hear about the glass ceiling for women, especially at the C-suite level. Did you guys find that you had to adopt certain strategies or certain skills to sort of advocate for yourselves or fight for your positions? As they sit outnumbering the male here on the panel. <laughs> I love it. Sorry, John. Um, sorry, sorry, not sorry, actually. <laughs> we love you, John. Um, no, but that, that's, a, that's a really fabulous question. Thank you for asking that. Ladies? I, I, I'll start that one off. Um, yeah, I had a tough time um, 
a lot of what I did, I often was the only woman in the room initially, uh, which is why my great friend from grad school um, was, is so helpful to me. I find that having an advocate, again, what I had said before, it's not just a mentor, but someone who is there speaking on your behalf to the powers that be when you're not in the room, saying the good things about you um, that you would hope that someone would say about you. Um, and that those are really rare to find, but if you can find someone in the organization, and yes, it's normally gonna be a man, um, that has, that helped me. It helped me immensely. I don't think I could have gotten as high as I did without that help, and I had two in, in my current organization to get there. But um, it always helps. The mentor is helping you on a day-to-day -day basis. The advocate is the person who is really the one that's advocating for you when you're not around. And it, you know you can't just go up to someone and say, hey, can you be my advocate? That's a, a relationship you develop over time. And it may not be someone you're all that friendly with, but someone who uh, sees in you that passion, the integrity, the whatever it is, that spark that you bring to the table. And they want more of it. So you have to look for it and actively start developing a relationship, a business relationship with that person. So for example, if if I was a junior level employee and John was in you know, a senior level employee in my in my company, I would actively start going to him. And it doesn't have to be someone who's senior to you. It can be someone who's your peer but has a voice at the table. That's what you have to really look for. That's great advice. Any wisdom from our other women on strategies or things you had to do uniquely as a woman? Uh, well, I guess I never really felt like that in my company, but I'm sure, you know, depending on the type of company you work for, how large it is, how, you know, that there would be, you could be more challenges. But I think some of it does come down to your own confidence and um, not really feeling like there are barriers, not necessarily being waited to be invited, you know, into the room, but sort of envisioning yourself there. You know, but I also think like, at, you know, as you get to different levels in your career, you often start seeing things differently. I mean, it's, you may say, oh, I want to be a CEO one day, but as you get closer to that and closer to that, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, and then sometimes you, you're like, no, thanks. you know, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not, because, you know, so, th yeah. there are, you know, you know what you enjoy doing, and you know, being the president or CEO of a company, you know, may not be it for you. So I don't always know if it's corp corporate America that's you know uh, creating the barrier for women, or if just people in general. It's just those high-level jobs are just not for everyone. I mean, it really takes—it's a huge, huge commitment, responsibility, stress level, etc. But also, I don't think I really understood what what a CEO uh, experience is and what CEOs really do. And it can be different if you're a publicly traded company, you know, versus whether when you're a, a private company. And so, I mean, it sounds good to say I want to be the CEO, but I think it's important. I learned over time that, that there's a lot of components to that that, you know, really aren't what I love to do, actually. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think it's a glass ceiling, but sometimes... You don't. You can feel happy with getting to a certain level and and move more laterally, I guess. Yeah. In my own experience, it's been 
uh, I think at the end of the day, you either get in your own way or you don't. Um, and by what I mean by that is, you know, I, I, I've, I've always, I look younger than I am and I'm small, which makes it sometimes really, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but it does make a difference when I wear heels to board meetings um, because I just have a different presence than if I'm in flats and like standing in a room full of um, men um, or taller women. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've had the good fortune of working primarily with women. That's not to say that I haven't felt that the stereotype of the woman executive hasn't gotten in the way of certain conversations. So I think at the end of the day, what it really does come down to is uh, understanding where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and being ready to talk about both. And that's really, at the end of the day, what's going to propel you forward. Because if you can be that honest, then you can set your goals in a way that makes sense for you. So great. John, do you have any, anything to add to, to that? I mean, I know you're not, I know you're not a lady, but uh, a woman, but um, just your, your experiences with that, and you know, I'm sure over the last several, uh, you know, over the last couple decades, you've seen things change and the conversation about this change. Um, what's been your experience? I, I owe a lot of credit to my, to my own mom, who is an extremely high achieving uh, corporate lawyer. Um, I had a profound amount of respect for what it took for her to get through law school with kids and then wow. getting into the corporate world and the legal world as a trial lawyer on her own. Um, so I, I, my brothers and I never had, had an issue with that. And I have been really, truly blessed by the women that I've worked with. Um, and I, I'm particularly fond, I had a, a sales team at Hulu that was about 65 or 70 and I, my best friends are, are there and, and, and the women in particular work so hard to get that company started. And many of them are still there, and I'm proud of them. And we continue to have great relationships. And I just and I applaud you guys. That's it's awesome. Amazing. amazing. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, do we have? Oh, we have so here. How about you? And then we'll go to you. And then we're probably gonna have to wrap up, you guys. Although I don't want this um, to end. Thanks for all your time. Uh, this could actually be a really good follow-up question. I was just wondering, in the times that were more difficult on your path to where you are now. Um, can you put into words what it is that kept the, the, the fire lit, I guess you would say? Ooh, who wants to start? <laughs> Rent. <laughs> yeah. The musical or the actual thing? Because <laughs> both, both can do the job. <laughs> 525,000. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just for practical reasons, but... I don't know, I think I just always like a good, I like a challenge, you know, so I'm not one to give up on something too easily. And usually you learn, you have the perspective over time and you probably know it from school, it's like sometimes things just seem so hard that you can't imagine that you're gonna get all that study done or get that paper done or make that deadline and you just, it's so overwhelming and you just wanna cry, but then you do get it done, you know, and then it's like the next, and then things are better and then you're like, okay, what's next? So. It's just like that with you know work life too. It's just uh, you get through it. Also, just knowing that like uh, time is this silly thing that we get hung up on. Like, oh, I need to be here in five years. Well, you know, I mean, the last twenty years has gone by in a snap, and so not getting caught up in like, oh, I have to do this job for a year, and I don't know where I'm going to be after a year. It, like, you just sort of recognizing that. Uh, um, you just keep moving, and you don't have to get so caught up in 
how old you are, how many years it's going to take you, how long it's taken you to get to where you are. It's just it's a constant forward motion until you decide to stop. Um, I'm back to something that you had said earlier. It's about um, you either get your way or you don't. And I think that, you know, it's how badly do you want it. And yet, regardless of what it is that's making your life tough at that moment, um, wherever it is that you want to be, whatever goal you have to achieve, it's how badly do you want it and what sacrifices are you willing to make to get it. Yeah. John, anything that... Yeah, I, I, Maria, I like, I like what you just said. I think, you know, we can talk about a competitive nature that keeps us going, or Rocky Balboa, right? And, um, <laughs> we all have the eye of the tiger most mornings. Um, uh, rent, or Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah, rent, definitely. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I've been a family man for a long, long time. Um, but also just, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to keep a diary and look back on your experiences because you'll find that there was quite often a purpose for every single one of those. And every single person that you've met in your life, every single experience, every single job, maybe it's a professor, maybe it's a family member, it's all woven into this interesting fabric of this thing that becomes your career and your life. So it keeps me motivated to look back and say, yeah, I made it through that. And, and you know what, I'm better for it. Or I, I met this person and here they are in my life again 10 years later. Or, you know, I'm stronger for that experience. So that's, that's what's got to keep us all going. Such great words of advice and wisdom. Thank you guys so much. We, we're going to have to wrap it up there because we're, um, we're at the end of our day here. But thank you so much. Truly invaluable. You guys are incredible. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It might be you in that C-suite one day. So keep developing your leadership skills and read. There are a lot of great books on leadership. Check out the ones recommended by the panel, which include Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, The Miracle of Mindfulness by Tich Nhat Hanh, and Jesus CEO by Lori Beth Jones. Till next time, I'm Peggy Kim. And remember, a future now is a future one.